Hi, this is Jeff Keilinger, the former general manager of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, and you're listening to the Water Values Podcast. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations, by Mentor APM, intelligent asset management software built for water, by Woodard & Curran, high-quality consulting engineering, science, and operation services, by Intera, innovation and stewardship for a sustainable tomorrow. By Xylem, Let's Solve Water. By the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource. By Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference. And by Trinex, Trust in What's Next. This is Session 248. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you for joining me. Well, happy holidays and happy new year to all. We have a terrific podcast for you to close out 2023. We have a fantastic panel of water industry leaders that includes Rajan Ray, Vice President of Strategy for Trinex, Sarah Porter, the Director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University's Morrison Institute for Public Policy, and Vic Kelson, the Director of Utilities for the City of Bloomington, Indiana. Before I go any farther, uh, I'm going to dole out my award. Sarah, you get the award for longest title of any guest on the podcast this year. Uh, so I bestow that upon you. And as as we were doing our pre-recording session, Sarah kind of joked that uh, that she always has the longest title, whatever panel she's on. So she gets she gets that prize this year. So uh, congratulations, Sarah, you win. Uh, but in any event, our panel does a great job discussing the year that was in water, identifying the key issues we experienced in 2023, and the what to be on the lookout for in 2024. It's just a terrific group discussion of water leaders with diverse viewpoints coming together to share their experiences and knowledge in the water sector. Well, as you know, we always say thank you to our awesome sponsors at the top of every show. The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by Mentor APM, Woodard and Curran, Intera, Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black and Veatch, and Trinix. And that, my friends, is a terrific collection of impactful companies that have decided to come together to support water industry thought leadership and education. And I thank you all. I'd love it for you, the listener to do me a favor. If you work for or with any of the sponsors, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor firm and let them know you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. That little note of thanks will go a long way. Believe me. And as long as you're letting the sponsors know you appreciate their support of water industry education and thought leadership, hey, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or whatever other podcast directory you access the podcast on. Just a few minutes you take to fill out a rating and a review would be greatly appreciated. And of course, it helps others find out about the podcast. And also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. I would be greatly appreciative if you'd subscribe. I understand that kind of stuff is important. Now it's time for the main event, our year in water panel with Sarah Porter, Vic Kelson, and Raj Ray. So let's get that water flowing. Well, welcome to this great panel for of the Water Values Podcast. We have uh, Vic Kelson 
Raj Ray and Sarah Porter, and I will ask each of them in turn to give just a quick thumbnail introduction of themselves before we uh, launch into the the meat of today's episode. So Vic, why don't you start by uh, giving us a little thumbnail introdu- introducing yourself to the listeners. I'm Vic Kelson. I'm the director of utilities for the city of Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, we have a, we're water, sewer, and stormwater uh, utilities for the city. And uh, we actually provide uh, water services uh, to a number of wholesale customers that serve essentially the entire Monroe County region. It's about uh, pushing 100, uh, 180,000 people or so. Uh, we have 27,000 water connections and about 22,000 sewer connections. So we're a, a medium-sized Midwestern utility. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, Raj, you want to go next? Yeah, thanks, um, Yeah, My name is Raj Ray. With, uh, I'm the Vice President of Strategy with a technology company called Trinix. And we have, do commercial software and services around helping utilities with digital transformation. Um, so anything from uh, light and copper compliance uh, workflows to PFAS monitoring sampling, um, all the way to types of um, surveillance for COVID, monkeypox, and opioids. Uh, we kind of run the gamut of different types of uh, data, data science technologies. Great. Thanks, Raj. And, and Sarah, could you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Yes, I'm Sarah Porter, Director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Uh, what we are is a water policy-focused think tank that focuses primarily on uh, resources and policy issues in Arizona and the U.S. Southwest. We do have a really cool website for people to check out called the Arizona Water Blueprint. So I hope people will check that out. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. So let's um, start off. And Vic, I'm going to start with you. What's your key takeaway for the water industry in 2023? Well, this year, uh, a lot of us are really concerned about uh, the PFAS uh, question. How do we? How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to pay for treatment in the cases where where we need treatment? Uh, we're fortunate in Bloomington. Our water comes from a reservoir that's high in the watershed. So we're fortunate to not have uh, any uh, significant amount of PFAS in our watershed. So that's good news for, for me. But for a lot of my my uh, uh, colleagues elsewhere, that's a, that's a pretty big issue and everyone's really concerned about it. So I think that's a big a big issue uh, right now. And of course, we're all dealing with the lead and copper rule and uh, and the requirements of that and worrying about how we're going to pay for all of this. Yeah. So I, I find that interesting because when Raj was inter- introducing himself, he talked about um, PFAS and lead and copper rule. So Raj, I mean, let's, let's hear your, your takeaways for uh, the water industry in 2023, what what kind of stands out to you from from your vantage point as a technology company? Yeah, thanks, Dave, um, and yeah, thanks to the panelists. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of an honor to to be uh, on with you guys. Also, um, I, you know, the, I think the main takeaway for me and kind of a lot of my colleagues is we deal with a lot of utility professionals, and they've gone through a lot <clears throat> post COVID. And workforce challenges, all these compliance regulations with PFAS and with lead, you know, the different weather patterns with climate change and droughts and fires across the different regions of the U.S. Um, 
everything from customer transparency. Like there's a lot they're dealing with. So, but there's still you're not seeing many news cases of like a lot of violations or not getting safe drinking water to the customer. So they're still getting all that stuff done which is uh, commendable. So that the resiliency with uh, utility professionals is to commend it. So Vic, uh, thanks for you and your team. I'll, I'll, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a big, big service you guys provide. And I, and with all that's going on, it's, it's a challenge you guys are overcoming, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I think with, so with 2023, all the, all those, um, items from regulations and um, aging infrastructure, dealing with that. I still feel like there's a big, good optimism. Um, that's, that's even reported in the last uh, AWA state of the water industry survey. They're saying, you know, that the optimism with utility professionals is steadily increasing after um, from past surveys, which is great to see. And then I guess my, my specific lens around technology and digital um, it's been pretty, pretty great to see how various personas, industry personas from utility managers like Vic to regulators is adopting technology to assist with some of these pressing regulations. So examples would be the use of machine learning for material prediction for, um, you know, predicting where to inspect for lead pipes and where lead pipes are. It's just a huge, a huge cost savings and more and more states are adopting that practice as a um, way to justify if, the, if it's uh, lead or not lead. And that's, if you go back five, 10 years ago, that's a huge change, right? In terms of leveraging technology that's relatively new, um, but it, it, adopting it with good validation um, across the board. Very good uh, insights there, uh, Raj. Sarah, what about now? I'm really interested in the perspective from out west. What 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 has been the key takeaway from 2023? The the key takeaway for the Southwest for 2023, I would say, is two parts. One is adaptability is critical. Uh, a year after the winter of 2022, the the Colorado Basin looked incredibly um, close to a, a crisis point where we weren't sure if we could even keep uh, one or the other or both of the big reservoirs that hold Colorado River water for the lower basin from reaching, you know, dead pool or minimum hydropower production. And then we had an amazing winter of 2023 that brought us relief and some other things that brought us relief. Um, but at the same time, you know, the region was involved in negotiating new measures to take to keep us away from these danger points. And it was almost head spinning to be hearing really good news. You know, the, the reservoirs are recovering to some extent, and yet we still need to do some hard things to, to keep the region water resilient. Uh, and it came to a point where, um, you know, sometimes these negotiations are very difficult, but I credit the people in the region and particularly the people at the table with adaptability and staying open to new ideas and to considering alternative ideas. The other big takeaway, the second part, is how we're communicating water issues out to people who aren't 
in the, you know, in the thick of the water policy discussion. There's much more anxiety and angst and um, lack of comprehension of what are the real risks that different communities are facing. And so I think we need a bigger commitment to do a better job to think ahead of time about how these issues, uh, before they emerge, really, how to communicate them to a larger audience. Those are those are absolutely great. And I think I, I'd like to to Raj, I'm going to pick on you and and Sarah's last comments, uh, you know, really reflect climate change. Right. And when you were talking about technology, uh, I, there was a little bit of focus on PFAS and uh, lead and copper rule. I'm curious how your view for the use of technology to help that adaptability that Sarah was talking about and, and also to help with messaging to constituents about, about water issues. And so Raj, I'm, I'm going to turn to you and, and just ask for your thoughts on that, on that topic. Yeah, I think with climate change and um, customer uh, awareness, notification of transparency is it's, they're separate but very uh, linked kind of topics, right? So climate, I'll, I'll address the climate change side of things. Um, and there's, you know, regionally, there's different impacts, you know, from Sarah's location, the supply diversity and droughts affecting reservoir levels is a big deal where I am in the Northeast, um, hurricanes, flooding, uh, overflows and impacting sewers and having overflows is a, is a big deal. And there's regulations around notifying customers that are popping up in different states when there are overflows and uh, being very transparent with those communications. Um, and then wildfires to, uh, you know, all those, all the different types of climate change, change activities. Um, Every whenever I say climate change, why just know that water is kind of hand in hand. It's just uh, it's so closely linked, um, and and it's affecting kind of everything that we do in terms of industry, even from like from the consultants, design and engineering firms, looking at their designs with rising sea level effects of assets that are close to rivers and oceans. Um, to evaluating different weather events. You know, the weather patterns have changed pretty drastically in recent years with burst events. You know, these 50-year storms are coming up way more often um, than necessarily predicted in the in the past. And the consumption patterns um, based off these weather events and even with remote work is changing a whole bunch of things. That's kind of getting, going off topic, but all, all of those have impacts in terms of our infrastructure and how we address it to the community. So um, I mentioned overflows, sewer overflows or combined sewer overflows in different parts of uh, the U.S. We're seeing more some utilities invest in early warning systems to kind of proactively address that, those types of overflow events. And um, look at overflow management, basically the, the five or 10 year master plans that 
have been developed for a lot of utilities are kind of out the window based off some of these recent kind of changes in patterns of climate change and weather. And so um, conservation efforts in the West and Southwest to overflow management in Northeast and, and the Midwest is all, all things that are going to be um, that are changing and are being kind of addressed um, and ideally communicated proactively with the, with the residents. Great. Sarah, can I, can I turn that question to you now and, and ask your perspective on how technology impacts adaptability and, and customer education or constituent education? Well, I guess I would answer that from kind of a a different perspective. Um, I think often when we're thinking about water from the utility perspective, and there's obviously a huge opportunity. um, And and out here in the in the Southwest, where water supply is uh, the really the greatest challenge, um, many utilities are finding that uh, the more customers can be uh, connected up with what's going on with 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 their use of water, uh, the better the response um, the utilities have in their uh, push push for for customers to reduce their water use. So there's an example of a, a local utility in a suburb of Phoenix, uh, the the city of Surprise, where they. Um, They've discovered that smart metering, of which they're uh, implementing, hopefully they're they're trying to do it community wide, has uh, led to uh, like uh, an immediate uh, daylighting of huge numbers of outdoor irrigation leaks um, that probably you know most of which would have gone unnoticed had it not been for smart metering. Um, and there's an example of you know uh, using. Um, technology for improved communication with the, you know, the rate payer. Well, I'll follow up a little bit on what Sarah said. Uh, in 2019, we deployed uh, advanced, you know, uh, advanced metering infrastructure uh, everywhere um, through our system. And we have a lot of customers, not enough, but we've got a lot of customers who signed up for the, the customer portal and they get warnings uh, and we get, of course, we get additional warnings uh, that we can then follow up on with the customers. Uh, that's been good for, for our customers and it's reduced a lot of water losses for them and leaks and damage to their homes and, and so forth. Uh, and it's, a, it's, uh, it's done wonders for our customer service function, uh, strangely enough, because all our bills get metered on the same day, which makes, uh, reduces a whole, a whole category of customer questions and complaints to zero. Uh, they don't, we don't have that problem where some months you're, you're, you're metered twice in one month or you're metered 23 days apart versus 45 days apart. Um, that's very confusing for a lot of the customers. So I think that's been very beneficial for us in terms of just communicating the day-to-day um, information to customers. But we also have uh, embraced a lot of technologies for uh, doing additional customer outreach. We, of course, do some social media stuff. Uh, we've done a lot of work in-house on uh, making uh, public service announcement videos uh, that we have on the cable access station here in Bloomington. Uh, we've been thinking about doing uh, YouTube ads that would be targeted to customers in the Monroe County area. 
uh, to tell all the other stories of things we're doing, uh, adopt a drain for storm inlets, and uh, uh, just a whole raft of other kinds of questions of, of public service videos that we've been making. So technology is, is very important for doing that public outreach, but one of the real challenges is there are dozens of ways to do uh, public outreach through tech, whether it's social media or videos on YouTube or uh, public service announcements in other places. The, the challenge is there are so many of them and you really don't know which ones your customers are plugging into. And it's very difficult to get much feedback about that. So uh, one ends, ends up spending a lot of time just basically going everywhere uh, trying to find the customers. And uh, it's difficult to get a high level of response when you uh, go out and ask people. So uh, we still have a lot of issues with um, customers not getting the message when we're doing doing various kinds of projects. So there's, uh, it's an ongoing struggle to actually get out there and reach everybody. And, and especially in the Midwest where people don't see a lot of water problems on a, on a daily or weekly basis. You know, we don't have droughts where all the plants are drying, uh, drying up and dying as frequently as perhaps they would in the Southwest. So that's, that's an important aspect of it for us. Yes, Sarah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about kind of what Vic kind of left off on there. I mean, Vic, Vic indicated that they'd like to get more customer engagement. Are you, are you seeing what kind of levels of customer engagement are you seeing in the Southwest? Are there, are there policies that can be enacted to kind of improve that customer engagement? Or is it, is that just something that, you know, Vic's, Vic's uh, description of, of the typical customer almost in, in Indiana? It's just, yeah, I, I, I think that I think it's such a good um, difficult issue because we people not only have many channels, media channels, essentially to get information from, but also there's so much competition for people's attention, uh, and so it's it is very hard to tell to get messages or stories across what we've experienced here. <laughs> particularly in, you know, the Phoenix area, is that uh, a crisis seems to spur a lot of public interest. And, and it, it may not actually be a crisis in the minds of uh, the, the people on the ground, but we've had, you know, the big story of the Colorado River over the last year. And then the recent story, and I, I dread bringing it up because I'm so tired of it, but uh, a community near Scottsdale, Arizona, Rio Verde, um, that is a water hauling community. They rely on a combination of uh, residential wells and trucked water, which is a highly unusual situation. Um, and this, they, this community had been hauling water from the city of Scottsdale. And some years ago, Scottsdale alerted the community that they were going to turn off the, um, the, the spigot for hauled water uh, if Scottsdale had to start taking steps to implement its drought response plan uh, in response to Colorado River shortage. So when the day came and, and Scottsdale, you know, shut the water off, it became uh, not only a national but an international news story that, uh, you know, the Phoenix area was running out of water. 
And these, the, the news coverage really did prompt many people who are not at risk to become very worried about their, their own water security locally. So I, I can say that a, you know, a perceived crisis is, um, it seems to be pretty effective at getting people to care. Well, we've got a, this is much more of a little tempest in a teapot than, than Sarah's story, but um, we uh, began treating uh, at our, at our drinking water plant with powdered activated carbon in 2017. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, led to is all, uh, we got no taste and odor complaints for over four years. And then all of a sudden in 2021, uh, we had a two weeks stretch where we had taste and odor complaints that we hadn't had for four years. Prior to that, we had hundreds of them all summer long, year after year. Um, and then it happened again in 22 and 23. And we think it's uh, something Raj alluded to that the the summer weather patterns here are changing. Uh, Dave, you live in Indiana too. So um, historically, we were used to every couple of weeks, a line of thunderstorms rolls through the area. And the last five or six years, more frequently, we go five, six weeks sometimes with hot weather, lots of sunshine and, and no rain. And that just, I, I, we, we suspect that that's what's led to higher algal populations and, and the propensity for uh, for blooms that can give us taste and odor issues. Uh, but because the public had gotten used to the water not tasting funny, when it did, everybody said, oh my gosh, you know, it became this big local crisis with hundreds and hundreds of complaints and, uh, and uh, us having to do a lot of outreach. And I don't think people really understand that, uh, first of all, there's a big information problem in a situation like that, but also uh, that this may very well be related to climate change and, and fixing a problem like this can be very expensive. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. People don't pay attention to the water until it's either gone or it tastes funny or it has cloudiness or something like that. Yeah. I would add to that um, kind of both Sarah and Vic's points, like it's the, sometimes the bad press that gets the headline and gets the majority of the coverage and, and maybe prompt good or bad action, um, depending on what the event is. But, uh, you know, what I, what I've, we've been seeing and, and some, some utilities, like uh, some of the highlight ones that stick out is Louisville and Green Bay water. They do a really good job of continual kind of their utility brand awareness um, prior to any types of events. So there's like continual outreach, uh, customer notifications and awareness through their social channels, through their website, through local coverage, newspapers and things like that. They're kind of hitting it. They, they do a strong job. And a lot of it sometimes is, is sometimes it's, it's actually prompted by some of the regulations. Um, so an example, like, you know, I'm sure Vic has to go through the, the lead and copper rule, um, and the most recent, the, the LCRI just came out um, just the other day. And both of those have some sort of customer awareness um, aspect to it. And so you're kind of forced to do it, but it's, it's a good thing because um, in my mind, because it is, it, provide, it kind of puts you in the driver's seat for the news coverage versus, um, you know, hearing about the, the bad news story that gets in everybody's face. Um, 
So it kind of makes makes the utility a little bit more proactive when they're doing digging up yards for replacements or um, you know doing things like like that or informing the public what is PFAS and how is it you know how's it going to be collected what is the water quality in your your residential house or neighborhood everything. Great points. Um, one of the issues we haven't hit on yet is affordability, and I know that has been a big issue in years past, especially through COVID. Uh, Vic, what any any thoughts on affordability and equity uh, in twenty three? Well, here in Bloomington, um, we have a, a customer assistance program that helps people uh, who have uh, have a difficult time paying uh, for for their water bills. Uh, but but that's not the whole story. Uh, being able to um, help people afford the water is is part of the story. Um, uh, here in Indiana, uh, we don't have a lot of options for uh, for adjusting pricing for customers uh, based on their their economic status. Uh, we're we're really not allowed to do that. So uh, we have to be constantly cognizant of the uh the the cost of the service that we're providing and uh and what's what's redoubled that problem uh as we've gone through covid is that everything's gotten uh just terribly expensive so capital projects for a while they were coming in at maybe two times or even more uh, of the engineer's estimate and when you're doing that that puts a lot of pressure on rates and you start uh eventually you can see the the day out there where it's going to be very difficult to pursue the capital investments that we need simply because of concerns that the, the a larger um, cohort of customers isn't is simply not going to be able to afford the, the price of the service. So um, this all keeps, this all spins around together. Um, but here in Bloomington, um, we, we do what we've, we've got a program that uh, is, is accessed pretty frequently uh, by by customers, but uh, uh, we haven't been able to do some of the more creative stuff uh, that uh, I and our mayor would like to explore, uh, simply because uh, they're just not allowed under the regulations here. Yeah, yeah. Raj, do you have any thoughts on on equity and affordability uh, from the from the technologist perspective? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I feel uh, I really appreciate that Vic's answer. I, I, I feel for um, folks in their position. There's a lot to uh, to deal with um, with the changes of pricing and rates and how different types of populations are affected. I mean, from a, a technology or digital standpoint, you know, it, it would be nice. We're seeing this more, more and more. Is that um, as engineers and planners, we just need to do a better job of being transparent in our decisions to upgrade infrastructure, where, why, and when. Um, because it, it hasn't always been um, fair or transparent in the past, right? So with recent regulations, um, there is funding, there's grants to take equity into consideration, which is a good thing. But I still feel like there's some standardization that needs to happen to make it a little bit more widespread of an application. So when we do uh, capital planning and when we do removal of lead 
um, we can easily say that it's been done in areas where it needs the most, not where, um, you know, you know, different demographics uh, are affected that may not be the fairest. Um, but it's also, you know, part of that, it's also interesting to see how, how things are changing in terms of real estate prices and how that's affecting water, the water industry with kind of growing cities, you know, outside of your major cities five, 10 years ago from your LA's to Austin's going to these smaller cities and how that's affecting the consumption patterns and the water quality. Um, it, you know, that is an effect of how our economy is and how that affects the water. And really, you know, I remember, remember kind of watching a, a presentation during, uh, this goes years back of Las Vegas Valley water district presenting before the, the housing bust of how they're kind of doing modeling their system um, based on all this growth. And then the following year was the bust and it was a complete opposite problem. They were still doing the modeling, but they, were, they had all these empty subdivisions that were just draining the water, making the stagnant water quality problem in their system. And so they're figuring out different ways to address that. And uh, of course, those are all in different parts of uh, the city that were, you know, a lot of people are being being affected by that poor water quality. So it's, you know, it's it's a complicated challenge. And again, I wish, they'll, they'll, I'm sure it'll come, it'll be a little more standardized process, but uh, it should be every part of our, our capital planning and upgrade, infrastructure upgrade decisions to incorporate some sort of water equity um, component. Water affordability has uh, some extra dimension in a hot, dry place like Phoenix, where water is truly a matter of life and death. And the city of Phoenix recognized this some years ago um, and did a, a, a race and equity deep dive with a, with a small uh, citizen commission and um, looked at, and, and I think it'd be great if every city did this. At the time, the water director for the city of Phoenix was an economist, uh, Catherine Sorensen, who's now my colleague at the Kyle Center. But the, um, so that, so it, among the, the, the things that the city studied were affordability, looking at affordability from different metrics of affordability from if you're a minimum wage earning household to if you're a median income household, different ways of looking at affordability. And um, also looked at what is a critical amount of water that people need for, uh, you know, for just living a kind of decent quality of life, um, particularly focusing on the quantity of water that would be needed indoors by a, a family and kind of use those um, data points as, uh, critical guidance for setting uh, rates to make sure that there's a, uh, a low rate attached to that minimal block um, and, and also implemented policies to avoid total shutoff uh, when if a rate payer gets into trouble and is facing shutoff, um, not only are there, of course, the customer assistance programs um, other types of outreach to try to help the ratepayer avoid shutoff, 
But even if the, you know, if they get to the point where for one reason or another, they have to shut off uh, the, the water supply, which is really last resort in a place like Phoenix, um, instead of completely cutting off the water, the city puts on a device called a regulator that allows a little of trickle of water into the household so that people would still have some water supply. So I think this is, I think Phoenix has um, led the way in um, thinking through water equity in a situation uh, where water is so critical, water availability is so very critical to public health. Um, we actually wrote a report called 10 Tenets of Water Equity that takes kind of looks at the different challenges and trade-offs that community water systems face related to these issues. Great, great perspective on that. I really like that, Sarah. Uh, let's turn now to uh, 2024. And uh, Raj, I'm going to turn to you and ask you, what does 2024 look like? What are the what are the big issues we need to be on the lookout for in 2024? Thanks. Yeah, a few stick out. I think um, with um, regulations of the LCRR, LCRI, uh, so the October 2024 LCRR deadline for inventories, I think that's going to come fast for a lot of utilities that haven't really gotten started or may be in their initial stages. So I think that'll be kind of a big, big jump or a big um, initiative for a lot of utilities in that, in that uh, shape. Um, it'll be interesting to see um, PFAS regulations. Uh, it's going to stir up a lot of fun activity <laughs> with the utilities of, of, you know, hopefully a uh, clear guidance and, and of you know what to do, what what to collect, when, and um, we'll see a lot associated with that. A lot of technologies around treatments and uh, digital kind of helping with processing the data for the sampling and the analysis. Um, and then a couple other things: hiring workforce kind of related. I think it'll, it'll still remain a challenge. Uh, hiring retention for for many utilities, they will, you know, the positive spin to that is they will look to digital to fill in some of those utility labor gaps, and we'll see some of the uh, technologies with, you know, AI, machine learning, data science, um, data science as a service to you actually to help these utilities still, you know, deliver safe drinking water and, and at their appropriate service levels um, with, a, you know, a, a kind of a, a reduced or a workforce that they're still trying to hire for. And then lastly on my list is there's going to be a continued focus around cybersecurity, especially with all the turmoil in other parts of the world. You know, just this week was the uh, taking over of a booster pump station in Pennsylvania from a overseas uh, outfit so it's it's scary and it's, it's real. There may be some regulations that come around that, um, but those, yeah, I, I see that as those three or four things as some some big items for twenty twenty four. Great, thanks, Raj and Sarah. How about you? What are the big items uh, that you're you're going to be paying attention to in twenty four? Uh, the big challenge for twenty twenty four for the U.S. Southwest is going to be um, sort of staying the course uh, to. Stay 
uh, out of the danger zone on the Colorado River. And that means a continued commitment to uh, negotiations, uh, continued commitment to being adaptable and uh, getting to get where we need to be. Uh, the, the Colorado Basin states are facing a deadline of 2026 to come up with new operating guidelines for the Colorado River. And everyone is reposing a lot of hope uh, that the 2026 guidelines will be what we need to kind of move ourselves out of this um, place we've been for some years of seeing, you know, declining reservoir levels. Uh, we take some big steps, uh, yet it's insufficient uh, to get us out of trouble. So, so there's a lot of hope that um, over the next two years or so, we can uh, find our way to an agreement that will lead to better long-term water security for the region. Great. And Vic, uh, I'd like to echo some of the things that, that Raj pointed out. Uh, obviously, for most people uh, at uh, local utilities, the big push on the, the lead and copper rule uh, inventory is going to be a big a big job for a lot of us. We've been working on it for for a couple of years at least, and we're pretty far along, but we're not done yet. Uh, and we are doing the AI approach uh, that Raj mentioned earlier. Um, but that's going to be a big push, especially for some smaller utilities that haven't gotten started yet. Um, and we've got, uh, uh, that's going to be a big deal, uh, figuring out how to fund uh, lead and copper uh, or uh, lead service line replacements going forward. Uh, figuring out how we're going to do that is going to be a big challenge for us. And I think as we're finishing the inventory, uh, our engineering staff and uh, have been working on thinking about how we're going to approach uh, the replacement part. Uh, the 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 city side for us is pretty straightforward because we can roll that in with our uh, already active water main replacement program. The customer side is a much more difficult problem, uh, not only uh, because of the financing of it, but also uh, because uh, there are going to be political issues with uh, ordering people that, to allow us to replace their service line or ordering them to replace their own service line. I think that's going to be a political issue uh, in a lot of uh, in a lot of communities, um, and and I include Bloomington uh, in that list. I think it's going to be challenging. Um, the other thing is that the uh, we haven't seen, at least for our utility, we haven't seen a lot of impact from the from the uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, investments. They're coming they're coming along, but they're mostly uh, low interest loans, which is great. That will help with a, a lot of projects uh, going forward. But uh, you know, speaking for my community, uh, we still have a a chronic um, potential water scarcity issue here. Southern Indiana uh, naturally doesn't have reservoirs or big rivers in it, and uh, we're dependent on a on a Corps of Engineers reservoir for our water, and we can't. There isn't another source. And so if something were to happen to that lake, uh, it would be a big problem for us. Uh, and that also rolls back into the PFAS question, because what if we have to move away from the lake that we're using? Well, then we may have that issue uh, where we haven't had it before. So those kinds of long-term 50-year, 100-year resiliency questions have to be nagging in the backs of our heads. Um, and that's obviously 
something that um, I continue to work with uh, with the leaders in our department and leaders in our city to think about how we're going to approach that. And I think that's going to take bigger investment uh, at the state or maybe even federal level to help us get those kinds of things done. Great perspective. You guys have been a fantastic panel. I've really appreciated the different perspectives that have been offered, uh, especially, I mean, Vic, in your last comments, you kind of drew a line right to, to Sarah in the desert Southwest about uh, just security of water supply. So uh, yeah. ter- ter- terrific. Made me feel a lot better <laughs> <laughs> listening to Vic. it's just been an awesome panel and before we leave though i do have one final question for for each of you really quickly Uh, i want to find out what your favorite holiday food is uh so we kind of always end up with a fun question so vic i'm going to ask you what's your favorite holiday food uh it's actually christmas cookies Uh, and the (laughs) and not a particular cookie but just the concept of it Um, and, and the main reason for that is that my my two kids who are now uh, and now in their 20s. Uh, and I have had an, an annual tradition of of carving out a Saturday during uh, during December and calling it Cookie Avalanche Day. And we make eight or nine or 10 batches of different kinds of cookies and end up with this giant pile of cookies that we then share with people through the holidays. That's awesome. Raj, how about your, what's your, what's your favorite uh, holiday food? Uh, after after that, I'm getting hungry for some cookies right now. But I will say my my ho- favorite holiday food is a good uh, festive nut loaf. Um, it's a vegan and vegetarian friendly main course. It goes well with mashed potatoes, stuffing, and all the fixings. And even my uh, big time kind of meat loving family enjoy. So that's uh, that's the one thing that we look forward to. <laughs> and Sarah, how about you? What's your holiday favorite holiday food? Everybody's favorite in reality is fruitcake, but real <laughs> fruitcake, homemade with a lot of brandy. I'm sure there's a story behind that. <laughs> you know, my Annie Mix recipe. Ah, okay. Leave it at that. Great. All right. Well, thank you all. You've been wonderful uh, to have on, and I appreciate the time you've spent with us uh, and to, to help the listener learn more about what 23 what what the big issues were in 23 and what they can expect in 24 so thank you all really appreciate your time today thank you thanks dave thanks dave absolutely thanks guys bye i could not think of a better way to close out 2023 than talking with water experts vic raj and sarah thanks for sharing your time and insights you guys were fantastic i really appreciated you know the 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 granular level we went into on some issues, uh, and it was just a it was just a fantastic discussion to just sit in on and hear those water experts talk. Well, I'd love to know what you thought about the interview. Please check out the show notes page for links and information on this episode. Just Google the Water Values Podcast. Click the first link that comes up. That's our home on the web that is provided to us by Bluefield Research. And if you've listened to the podcast before, you are well aware that Bluefield Research and the Water Values LLC are not affiliates. We just have a joint marketing arrangement. And as part of that, Bluefield Research gives us a home on the web. Well, you can email me at david.mcgimsey at dentons.com. And you can sign up for the newsletter at that landing page as well. Thank you again for tuning in. And I hope you make it a great day and a great year. Plus, I want to give a huge thank you to our sponsors. Again, sponsors of the Water Values Podcast for 2023 are Mentor APM, Woodard & Curran, Intera, 
Xylem, the American Waterworks Association, Black and & Veatch, and Trinix. And this show would not be possible without those great companies and industry leaders. And I thank you all and wish you, you and the listeners happy holidays and a happy new year. Well, again, thank you for listening and for subscribing to the Water Values Podcast. Your support is truly appreciated. Again, happy new year to all, and I'll see you in 2024. Remember, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.